The following message was recorded at Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information can be found online at Bethlehem.Church. What if God has a message for you? And it takes about 12 minutes for you to read it. Would you think it would be a good investment of a dozen minutes? Our assigned text today is three chapters from the book of Acts, and some might think the reading of three chapters is an awful lot, but it's less than watching a soccer game in which nobody scores any goals, (laughs) catching up on Facebook opinions of people who know less than would be helpful, and for many of you it takes less time than driving to this campus. A word to our guests and those who might be watching online. We're preaching our way through the book of Acts, which is one of the 66 books of the Bible, and we teach what is called the whole counsel of God, the whole Bible. And the book of Acts is not so much a religious book, but it's a historical narrative. It's a record of things that Jesus began to do and teach, and that's what the author of Acts says in his very first chapter. This is a record of what Jesus began to do and teach. Jesus is not a fictitious, mythological, literary invention. His mother is a flesh and blood descendant of Adam, just like your mother. Just like your mother. Acts records the first three decades or so of the work of the Holy Spirit in spreading worldwide the news of Jesus' amazing life and death and resurrection and ascension, all observed by eyewitnesses. Now, I'd like to reach the end of the book of Acts, which Pastor Stephen will reach next week in this sermon, and I'd like to be able to say to the Lord, we read the whole thing from the pulpit, every word. So today we arrive at Acts chapter 24 where a man named Paul takes center stage. Now, in sermons over recent weeks and months, we've seen how Paul approvingly holds the coats of those who stoned Stephen to his very death. We've seen how Paul ravages believers, entering house after house, dragging off men and women to prison like Nazis. We've seen how Paul breathes threats and murder against disciples of the Lord, like the Taliban. We've seen how on the road to Damascus, Paul is struck to the ground by a light from heaven, while a voice says, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Remember, the book of Acts is about Jesus. The main character in that Damascus Road episode is not Paul. It's Jesus. We've seen how being blind for several days, scales fall from Paul's eyes, and immediately he proclaims Jesus, saying, He is the Son of God. We've seen when Jews plot to kill Paul, some disciples let him down through an opening in the wall. I picture maybe one of these windows, and down he comes in a basket. We've seen how he is initially feared by the disciples until Barnabas advocates for him. Picture this. It's as though a leader of ISIS or Al-Qaeda wanted to join a small group meeting in your house. 
and you're understandably afraid until somebody like Joby Morgan says, he's okay. We've seen how filled with the Holy Spirit Paul intently says to the magician, you son of the devil, stop making crooked the straight ways of the Lord. And immediately the man goes blind. We've seen how Paul is reviled by Jews, and he used to be one of their leaders. We've seen how he faces persecution stirred up by women of high standing and leading men, maybe on their Facebook pages. We've seen how he speaks in such a way that a great number believe. Don't you want to be like him? We've seen how he heals the crippled man at Lystra, whereupon Paul is stoned and dragged out of the city, presumed to be dead. But, as Miracle Max says in The Princess Bride, there's a big difference between mostly dead and all dead. We've seen how he casts out the evil spirit of divination from the slave girl. We've seen how he is stripped and beaten and thrown into prison with his feet fastened in stocks. We've seen how Paul is freed from prison by an earthquake, leading the jailer to ask, what must I do to be saved? To which Paul responds, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, the main character of the book of Acts. We've seen how in Athens Paul's spirit is provoked within him as he sees that the city is full of idols, and so he reasons in the synagogue and the marketplace. It is Paul who will elsewhere write, let your reasonableness be known to all. The Lord is at hand. We've seen how he does extraordinary miracles so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that have touched his skin are carried away to the sick and their diseases leave them and evil spirits come out of them. We've seen how Paul in Ephesus does great damage to the idol trade simply by speaking the truth in public. We've seen how he raises from the dead Eutychus, who is not mostly dead, but all dead. We've seen how he's arrested in the temple in Jerusalem. We've seen how he is the target of a plot by more than 40 Jews who bind themselves with an oath to neither eat or drink until Paul is dead. But the Tribune authorizes 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen, that's 470 soldiers, to whisk Paul away on a horse to Felix. And by the way, we don't ever hear what became of those 40 men who pledged themselves to not eat or drink until Paul was dead and who know he lives at least two more years. For 16 chapters now in the book of Acts, spanning 28 years, Paul's been a busy boy. Where were you 28 years ago from today? What has happened in 28 years of your life? We have followed Luke's record of Paul's excursions through places like Philippi and Thessalonica and Corinth and Ephesus and many more, years during which the relentless and unstoppable Spirit of Christ was bringing to Gentiles like us the news about Jesus' substitutionary death on the cross in our place. We just sang about it. And that brings us to today's text. We pick up the story where Paul has been arrested and has claimed his Roman citizenship 
and as a consequence is under the protection of the greatest military power of that time until he can go on trial where he believes he can prove his innocence. Now we're going to read these three chapters and as we read them keep your eyes peeled for the denial and suppression of the possibility of resurrections contrasted with confidence in eyewitness history. Second, keep an eye peeled for the extent to which Paul and others persevered in order to bring you and me such eyewitness reports. And third, be on the lookout for a few key aspects of salvation itself. What does salvation look like? So, Acts 24, verse 1. Those of you who may be using the Pew Bible, it's on page 933. You'll probably want to keep it open in front of you as we move through these three chapters. Verse 1. And after five days, the high priest Ananias came down. Now, it's about a five-day walk from Jerusalem that's about at 2,500 feet of altitude, about a half mile above sea level, down to Caesarea, which is at sea level, about a five-day walk roughly 60 to 70 miles. Paul's under arrest down at sea level in Caesarea. Apparently, the high priest thinks it's worth it to make that long walk to invest that much time prosecuting Paul. He wants to supervise the case personally, apparently. Continuing in verse 1, Ananias came down with some elders and a spokesman named Tertullus. and They laid before the governor, Felix, their case against Paul. And when he had been summoned, Tertullus began to accuse him. Now, if you were sitting on the jury in this case, and you're about to hear Tertullus' accusations and Paul's defense, which is going to happen now in verses 2 to 21, what would your verdict be? Listen carefully. Tertullus says, since through you, he's talking to Felix, since through you we enjoy much peace. Now, this is simply not true. And though we have to go outside the Bible to discover some of the details about Felix's immoral and turbulent ways, which are documented outside the Bible, we will see by the end of this chapter that he's lost his office and been replaced by another governor. So I sense a little flattery going on here by Tertullus. Since through you we enjoy much peace, and since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation in every way and everywhere, we accept this with all gratitude. But to detain you no further, I beg you in your kindness, kindness. He's not known for kindness, I will tell you. Hear us briefly, verse 5, for we have found this man a plague. Now if Paul is a plague... How is he a plague? Well, Tertullus makes three accusations. Number one, he's one who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world. Supposedly, this stirring them up is in contrast to the peace that Tertullus is crediting Felix for. Second, and is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. Now, by calling them Nazarenes, it calls into question how familiar Tertullus really is with the Christians. Third, verse 6, He even tried to profane the temple. Now, Paul will refute all three of these in just a moment. Continuing, but we seized him. We're the heroes. 
He's the villain. Verse 8. By examining him yourself, you'll be able to find out from him about everything of which we accuse him. The Jews also joined in the charge, affirming that all these things were so. And when the governor had nodded to him to speak, Paul replied, Knowing that for many years you have been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. Not the same kind of flattery that came from Tertullus. Verse 11, you can verify that it is not more than 12 days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem. 12 days is not likely enough time to make the trek to Jerusalem and back, plus muster a following in order to cause a riot. Verse 12, and they did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd, either in the temple or in the synagogues or in the city. Neither can they prove to you what they now bring up against me. So what we have is allegations without evidence. 14. But this I confess to you, that according to the way, he doesn't call it Nazarenes, which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. In other words, I believe everything they believe. We believe the same. Verse 16, So I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. <clears throat> now, after several years, I came to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings. While I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple without any crowd or tumult. No tumult, no stirring up crowds, no riots. But some Jews from Asia, and they ought to be here before you and to make an accusation, should they have anything against me. Or else let these men themselves say what wrongdoing they found when I stood before the council. Other than this one thing that I cried out while standing among them, it is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day. Ladies and gentlemen of Bethlehem, this is the point of contention. They believe generally in a resurrection. Resurrections can happen. What they're disputing is that Jesus, by rising from the dead, is the Christ. This is the fork in the road. Now, at this point, if you were the jury, what would be your verdict? Does Paul deserve to die? Verse 22. But Felix, he's the governor, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, put them off, saying, When Lysias the tribune comes down, I will decide your case. And then he gave orders to the centurion that he, that's Paul, should be kept in custody but have some liberty, and that none of his friends should be prevented from attending to his needs. Sort of like house arrest. 24. After some days, Felix came with his wife Drusilla, who was Jewish, and he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. And as he reasoned, Christianity, my friends, is reasonable. As he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed. Now, why would you be alarmed about judgment unless you have some sin that's unatoned for? And Felix said, 
go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, hold it, it's continually inconvenient to repent, to change your ways. When are you going to start that diet? Well, later. When are you going to start that Bible reading plan? Well, soon. It's always inconvenient to make the change now. We're no different from Felix in this. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you, 26. At the same time, he hoped that money would be given him by Paul. So he sent for him often and conversed with him. And when two years had elapsed... (laughs) Put a little exclamation mark in there. Two years Felix has toyed with Paul in these conversations while 40 men are not eating or drinking. (laughs) Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus. Felix now has been booted out of office. In fact, he's been hauled to Rome. We don't know that from this text, but we know it from other sources. And desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison when Felix left office. Kind of like, no presidential pardon for you, Paul. Chapter 25. Now, three days after Festus, this is the replacement for Felix, three days after Festus had arrived in the province. Wow, this is early in his tenure. You know, people who come into office usually have a list of things they want to do in the first hundred days, let's say. This is day number three, and it's going to involve he went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea. A five-day walk uphill. Verse 2. And the chief priests and the principal men of the Jews laid out their case against Paul, and they urged him, asking as a favor against Paul, that he summon him to Jerusalem. Now, Paul's in Caesarea, down at sea level. We want you to bring him up here to Jerusalem, and we want to put him on trial up here. Because they were planning an ambush to kill him on the way. Do you see the intense hatred? Do you see the seriousness of Paul's accusers? They're full of anger. And they're full of baloney. And their baloney is fueling their anger. Beware of your own anger. Are you sure you've got your facts right, your heart right, your expectations right? Verse 4, Festus replied that Paul was being kept at Caesarea. So he's being providentially, Paul's being providentially protected from ambush. Jesus is going to complete his mission in and through Paul, and you two are indestructible until God has completed your mission. Paul's being kept at Caesarea, and that he himself, Festus, intended to go there shortly. Five. So he said... Let the men of authority among you go down with me to Caesarea, and if there is anything wrong about the man, let them bring charges against him. And after he stayed among them not more than eight or ten days, he went down to Caesarea, and the next day he took his seat on the tribunal and ordered Paul to be brought. And when he had arrived, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him, bringing many and serious charges against him that they could not prove. No witnesses. No evidence, just allegations. We don't like Paul. And we brought a bunch of other people who don't like Paul. Well, tell me, what did he do? Well, we've got some other people who don't like him also. Eight. Paul argued in his defense, 
Neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar have I committed any offense. He's proclaiming the kingdom of God, but not as a rival to Rome. Render unto Caesar. Paul has respect for the law. He's saying, basically, I ain't done nothing. Have you ever felt that no matter what you say, you will not be heard? Verse 9. But Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor. Hmm. Seen that phrase before. Said to Paul, Do you wish to go up to Jerusalem and there be tried before these charges? On these charges before me? Ten. But Paul said, No thanks. I'm standing before Caesar's tribunal where I ought to be tried. To the Jews I've done no wrong, as you yourself know very well. And if then I'm a wrongdoer and have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I do not seek to escape death, but... If there's nothing to their charges against me, no one can give me up to them. I appeal to Caesar. And then Festus, when he had conferred with his council, answered, To Caesar you have appealed, to Caesar you shall go. Now when some days had passed, Agrippa the king and Bernice arrived at Caesarea and greeted Festus. And as they stayed there many days... Festus laid Paul's case before the king, saying, now here comes Festus' seven-verse summary of the situation. It's kind of a recap for Agrippa, and it's a good review for us, too. Verse 14, there is a man left prisoner by Felix. And when I was at Jerusalem, up, up there, the chief priests and elders of the Jews laid out their case against him, asking for a sentence of condemnation against him. And I answered them that it was not, this is a good line right here, it was not the custom of the Romans to give up anyone before the accused met the accusers face to face and had opportunity to make his defense concerning the charge laid against him. This is a good policy in principle. It's part of our legal system to this day, and that's good. 17. So when they came together here, Caesarea, I made no delay but on the next day took my seat on the tribunal and ordered the man to be brought. And when the accusers stood up, they brought no charge in his case of such evils as I supposed. They got nothing. 19. Rather, they had certain points of dispute with him about their own religion. The word there that he uses for religion is superstition. And about a certain Jesus who was dead, but whom Paul asserted to be alive. Ladies and gentlemen, this is the crux of the dispute right here. Is Jesus risen from the dead or not? Everything hangs on this. 20. Being at a loss how to investigate these questions, I asked whether he wanted to go up to Jerusalem and be tried there regarding them. But when Paul had appealed to be kept in custody for the decision of the emperor, I ordered him to be held until I could send him to Caesar. 22. And then Agrippa said to Festus, I'd like to hear the man myself. Tomorrow, he said, you will hear him. So, on the next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp, and they entered the audience hall with the military tribunes and the prominent men of the city. And then, at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. And Festus said, King Agrippa, and all who are present with us, 
You see this man about whom the whole Jewish people petitioned me both in Jerusalem and here shouting that he ought not to live any longer. So this is no small potatoes now. This is a capital punishment case. 25. But I found that he had done nothing deserving death. And as he himself appealed to the emperor, I decided to go ahead and send him. But I have nothing definite to write to my Lord about him. In other words, if I'm going to send him up to Caesar, Caesar's going to say, what are the charges? And I'm going to say, I don't know. I got nothing. Therefore, I have brought him before you all, especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after we have examined him, I may have something to write. For it seems to me unreasonable in sending a prisoner not to indicate the charges against him. Which is the kind of injustice happening around the world right now. People being arrested, incarcerated, and not told why. Chapter 26. So Agrippa said to Paul, You have permission to speak for yourself. So having heard Festus' summary... Agrippa doesn't ask for any more charges, but he invites Paul to explain himself, offer a defense. Paul doesn't need Perry Mason. He's going to defend himself. So then Paul stretched out his hand and made his defense. Verse 2, I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa, I am going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews especially because you're familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. Now, patient listening might be something that King Agrippa is willing to do, but it's not something Festus is willing to do, as we'll see in a moment. Verse 4, Paul continues, My manner of life from my youth, spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem, is known by all the Jews. They've known for a long time if they're willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I've lived as a Pharisee. And now I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers. What promise? To raise the dead. Seven. To which our twelve tribes hope to attain as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope, I am accused by Jews, O King. In other words, I was a leader of the Jews. I believe all their Jew stuff. Eight. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? Now to conclude that because you have not personally observed a resurrection, therefore no one has, therefore resurrections cannot be possible is bad logic and arrogant to conclude that because most people have not personally observed a resurrection therefore they can't happen is bad logic and arrogant rare events are not impossible events There's no reason we should think it impossible that God can give resurrection power when He is Almighty God who makes the world out of nothing, who gives to all life, breath, and everything. 
Paul continues his defense. He's going to now tell of his experience on the Damascus Road, which is so important to him that he's going to retell it. He's already told it once. Now he tells it again. Verse 9. I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from these chief priests who are right here accusing me, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against these saints. And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme, which was a sufficient warrant for the death penalty. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. In this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. Right here, my accusers. Same guys now accusing me. 13. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, notice the we, multiple eyewitnesses. In effect, he's saying, you don't believe me? Go ask them. Round them up. I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? I ask myself this morning, are my struggles with contentment and thanksgiving a struggle against God? 14. Jesus is speaking. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. You know, goad, you know what the goads are? When they would hook up oxen, a team of oxen with a yoke, behind them there would be a bar, a wooden bar that had spikes sticking out of it so that if the oxen wanted to kick the, the driver, um, they would kick the goads and then they would stop kicking because of the immediate negative reinforcement. 15. And I said... Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, Now Jesus becomes autobiographical here. He's going to quote himself, referring to himself. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you. And here's the purpose statement now. Here's what Jesus is after. To open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. There we see six pointers to Jesus' lordship. I think this is God's message to us in these three chapters. The resurrected Jesus opens eyes so that people can turn to him, trusting him for forgiveness of sin. Here, Jesus has assigned Paul to make plain three aspects of salvation. One, God must give sight, and he does. Second, those whose eyes are opened turn. They repent. They turn from darkness to light. 
from Satan to God. And third, in turning, they receive forgiveness of sin and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in Jesus. By faith in Jesus. Now, verse 19, Paul gives a restatement of what he has just said. Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, and then in Jerusalem, and throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn. Isn't that what Jesus just told him? Repent and turn to God. Performing deeds, that's another way to say evidence of sanctification. Performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. Now, here's a challenge for you. Do you think, using only verses 18 through 20, you could explain to someone what it means to be a Christian? Try it. Verse 21. For this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple, tried to kill me. To this day I have had the help that comes from God. Brian Hansen, last week in this pulpit, emphasized providential protection by God over and over. I just think he did a masterful job of that last week. Paul continues, And so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, there's the crux issue, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. If we had time, we could trace that. He's already said that twice previously. Verse 24, And as he was saying these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. But Paul said, I'm not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I'm speaking true and rational words. For the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly. For I'm persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice. For this has not been done in a corner. These are actual historical events with eyewitnesses done in the public square. And now Paul moves in to nail down the king. He not only defends himself, but he seeks to persuade Agrippa and others to confess faith in Jesus. Verse 27, King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. And Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time would you persuade me to be a Christian? This question is an evasion. It's a suppression. Unbelievers know things they suppress. That's Romans 1. 29. And Paul said, Whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. And then the king rose, and the governor, and Bernice, and those who were sitting with them. And when they had withdrawn, they said to one another, this man is doing nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, This man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. Now if we back way up to Felix, what kept Felix from hearing was love of money. 
And what kept Festus from hearing? Very possibly fear of man. And what keeps Agrippa from truly hearing? I'm not sure. Is it fear of losing his place? You notice he withdraws into a back hallway before he has this discussion with Festus. To each of those three authorities, to Felix and Festus and Agrippa, Paul's defense hangs together because it's the same defense, namely the truth. He didn't stir up riots. He just announced news about an eyewitness historical event, the resurrection of Jesus. Now I would ask, does anything keep you from hearing? Do you trust in the work of the crucified and risen Jesus to accomplish the forgiveness of your sins? Are you profoundly grateful for the lengths to which Jesus has gone to bring us the news of salvation in the risen Lord? Are you impressed by the reasonableness of Paul who persevered to take the news of the resurrection to the world, including us, through great adversity and personal sacrifice? This morning, are you sobered? Are you comforted? Are you motivated to do likewise as Paul did? Are you able to examine yourself in light of of Jesus' resurrection. Now, the same Paul, whom we saw in today's text, said, Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Examine himself. For what? Well, many things, but this morning, especially this. Are you a Christian? Are you trusting in Jesus Christ alone for the forgiveness of all your sins and the fulfillment of all of God's promises to you, including resurrection? Agrippa asked Paul, Would you persuade me to become a Christian? And my answer is, Yes, if I could, I would. My plea to you this morning is, come on in. The water's fine. It's entirely reasonable, historical, life-giving, forgiveness accomplishing. Thank you for listening to this message from Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others. But please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Bethlehem Baptist Church. For more information, we invite you to visit us online at Bethlehem.Church or write us at 720 13th Avenue South, Minneapolis, Minnesota, 55415. Bethlehem Baptist Church, spreading a passion for the supremacy of God in all things, for the joy of all peoples, through Jesus Christ.